Hey, everybody. It is time for the 7th Avenue Project. Thanks for joining us. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show... You're seeing the world. You're being paid well for it. You're meeting people. It changed my life. It literally changed my life. Coleman Collins was a standout basketball player in college, and he might have had a shot at the NBA. If he'd hung around and worked his way up to the D-League, the NBA's minor league, But he opted for a faster track. He decided to go overseas and play internationally. That way he could start earning a decent paycheck right away and have some pretty cool travel adventures in the process. Over the last six to seven years, he's played for teams in France and Germany, in Bosnia, Ukraine, and Bahrain. American players have been leaving the United States and uh, hitting the international basketball circuit for a long time now. And I have long wondered what life was like for them, especially the African-American athletes who go abroad. I learned about Coleman uh, because he's not just an elite basketball player, but he is also a very perceptive writer. I found that out by reading the True Hoop blog on ESPN, where Coleman has written about his travels and his cross-cultural experiences. Well, True Hoop founder and blogger-in-chief Henry Abbott was nice enough to put me in touch with Coleman. Thank you, Henry. And we had a really uh, fun and interesting talk last week when Coleman was visiting friends and family in New York. I think you'll enjoy this conversation. Actually, I know you'll enjoy it. So stick around and listen to my interview with Coleman Collins. And uh, it is Coleman, by the way. Please hold the nicknames. People try to call me things, but they end up going back to Coleman. I've never had a nickname or an abbreviation or anything. So when someone calls you C-Man or something like that, what, what do you do? I say you can call me that, but I'm sure in, you know, a week, a month, a year, <laughs> you're not going to call me C-Man. <laughs> I am what I am. Well, then let me thank you, Coleman, for taking this time. And uh, I've been really interested in talking to you ever since I started reading your um, dispatches in the uh, excellent True Hoop blog started by Henry yeah. Abbott. Um, how did you guys hook up in the first place? How did he find this basketball player who's such a good writer? Well, what happened was... I was playing in the D-League, and I ended up tutoring this little girl as part of this community outreach program, and I wrote something about it that got picked up by the, by the Huffington Post. And uh, Henry contacted the PR director of, for the league, and he was like, you know, I want to get in touch with you. So I, you know, I went to lunch with him, uh, met up with some, him and some other writers. Uh, basically, he's just taken like a real interest in me, and I really, really appreciate him. Um, he made a concerted effort. To, to get me writing and to keep me writing because he, he felt like I had something. Even even though I've been a little bit busy and I, I probably haven't taken as, as much advantage of it as I should have, he's just always been you know really receptive and anytime I had any ideas, uh, I knew I could reach out to him and uh, I really can't thank him enough um, for that. Well, you had been writing uh, even before he noticed you, right? I mean, you say something you'd written showed up in the Huffington Post, but I now know from looking at some older pieces of yours that you wrote for, um, like, the college newspaper at Virginia Tech. Yeah, I wrote for the college newspaper. I talked to someone, and they said, you know, they need a columnist. And I said, why not? You know, because I've always enjoyed writing, and it was good for me, um, definitely to get that experience. And it was really easy for me because it was like this novelty. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, sure, well, that's the guy from the basketball team. I didn't really have any gatekeepers, you know what I mean? Right. I didn't do it very often. I had five or six columns in college. Well, did I understand this right? Did you take creative writing from Nikki Giovanni? I did. I did. But unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, it was an 8 o'clock class. So uh, <laughs> I took it. I was in the class, but I wasn't always physically there. Um, 
but she was she was great. It's another thing that I kind of regret not taking as much advantage of that as I should have, um, because you have this legend sitting in the front of the class, and me, I'm struggling. Like I'm not a morning person at all. You know, hopefully I, I learned a little bit from osmosis. You know, just being here. Mm. She's a small woman, but she has like this extreme presence. Like you know when she's in the room, <laughs> even if it's crowded, you know when uh-huh. she's in the room. So mm. it was a good experience, even though I didn't. And really use it the way I should have. Hmm. I had to laugh there because I had an eight o'clock calculus class as a freshman, and I rarely showed up for that too. After that, my sophomore year I had no morning classes. My junior year I didn't start any classes till one, and then my senior year, because I graduated after my junior year, and then my senior year I just did all my classes online. So mm. you know you can do that now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to know more about your growing up, where you came from. I guess you come from Stone Mountain, Georgia. Is that right? Yeah, Stone Mountain, Georgia, suburb of Atlanta, uh, home of Stone Mountain Park, the huge Confederate memorial on the side of the uh, the mountain. The Confederate um, Mount Rushmore. Yeah, yeah, the same same sculptor. And it's funny because there's a really large black middle class that lives there, but everyone goes to the park, you know, and you just take it at face value. Like they have this antebellum plantation where they. Like, oh, this this was the servants' quarters, you know what I mean? And but you know, really where the slaves were. And yeah, there's right. like this Confederate laser show and at the end of the laser show the figures light up and Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis all ride off into the sunset and like everyone cheers. And it's funny, I mean, having left the South, um, it's funny how much of that you take for granted and you know, now looking back it's just like to me it's just like it's amazing that that goes on, but that's just the South, and that's that's Atlanta for you. I mean, it's like full of contradictions and full of these strange things that, like, I think to an outsider, especially having lived in other countries where there have been conflicts and there have been certain, like, a reckoning uh, of sorts of, 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 like, what went wrong and we've learned our lessons. The South largely, you know, that didn't happen. And... Growing up there, you see the effect, and every, every time I'm back, you see, you see the effects of that with the city of Atlanta. And it, <laughs> Atlanta is a complicated place, and and that's where I grew up. That's an answer to your question. As you say, the area around Stone Mountain is largely black, and there's this monument to the old Confederacy, but it's not taken as kind of an insult or you know an offense. I mean, it's just one of those things you you don't think about. I mean, it's just like you know what? We're going to climb this mountain because it's nice. The air is fresh up there. We're going to sit in here and have this picnic on this lawn in front of Stonewall Jackson. You know what I mean? Like, we're going to sit here and enjoy this, just like these white people are going to do. Because why not? You know, because it's nice outside and that's what we're going to do. You can't live there and, and think critically about every situation because you'd go crazy. Yeah. And it's not even really a tense situation. It, it was really having distance away from it for me to be like, oh, wow, like, this this is strange. This is a bit absurd that, you know, like, I'm walking through these this recreation of a plantation. You know, we went there. It's like there's a recreation of a plantation, and you're like, like, oh, these were the good old days, like the the Hantebellum plantation, and like it was so peaceful under the magnolia trees and whatnot. And only only having that that distance and having seen other places and kind of really, because you're too close from it to really inspect it. You know what I mean? Like once you have that distance, you know, my perspective changed a little bit. I mean, I still love it. It's still it's still home, but it's definitely not the same for me to go down go around there anymore so so when you were a kid i imagine you were playing basketball from a pretty young age 
I started when I was four or five. Um, I was always going to play basketball. My father played. My brother played. You know, basketball was on in the house, and I couldn't not love basketball. <laughs> and I was and I was built for it. You know, I was always tall. And... Was the idea of a career though something that was encouraged? Like this is something you could actually do for a living? Never. It never occurred to me that I would make money from it. I mean, I when I was a little kid, I would write like. <laughs> fantasy stories like I was in the NBA and I'd go to Michigan like Chris Webber and you know like I have I think I have a story somewhere that I wrote about uh, I went to Michigan and then I went to the NBA and, and like a like a little story about what my, my future was going to be but as I got older it was always assumed you know I was going to go to college I was going to get a job preferably something white collar you know what I mean uh, because both of my parents went to college they both have graduate degrees, and it was only until, like, you know, in high school that I figured out, like, wow, I was pretty good at it, and, you know, I was going to be able to go to college for free, and then I was like, all right, you know, you got to take advantage of that. You, you can save $150,000 and go for free, then you do it. Then you go to college, and you turn out to be pretty good there, and then you start thinking about MBA workouts and, and actually making money at it, and it, it's been really, it's been transformative because, not only just the brief cup of coffee I had with NBA teams, but like seeing the world. I mean, I've been to, I don't know, 20 or 30 countries and I've been to almost every state in the union. I mean, I've been in playing in D league gyms in North Dakota and South Dakota and McAllen, Texas on the, on the Mexican border and, and Albuquerque, New Mexico and Boise, Idaho and all these places I never thought I'd be Kazakhstan and Belarus, like these places that, for me, existed on maps. And as a child, I was always obsessed with maps and subway maps and globes and whatnot. And they all kind of, it all kind of came together. And I think the fact that basketball and the fact that sport in general can can do that for, for people, and for me especially, personally, is like something I'll always appreciate. And <laughs> I guess I'm lucky I'm tall, you know. <laughs> I definitely want to talk about all that travel in just a moment, but going back to the the point at which you got you know you got scholarships, you were recruited uh, out of high school. Yeah, I mean, I was recruited by uh, Virginia Tech. I was recruited by South Carolina by uh, Dave Odom, but they wanted me to redshirt because because I graduated high school early. I skipped first grade, so I graduated high school at sixteen, and they wanted me to wait a year because I was going to be seventeen my freshman year, which he was probably right. I mean. If I had been thinking strategically now, I probably would. You know, now most kids come into college, they're like 19. Um, you know, they're physically stronger. And I was 19 my junior year, and it, it, it didn't help me, mm. um, to put it short. And if I had been thinking like, all right, I want to make the NBA, I want to be a millionaire, um, this is what I want to do, I would have like first not skipped the grade because that didn't help. And then I would have waited a year. But, I mean, my friends were going to college. I wasn't going to go to prep school like well all my friends were like off in college you know and I and academically I could do the work and I, I went to a situation where I could start you know get major playing time my first year so I said why not um it was between them and there were some Ivy League schools but at the time I don't know if it's still now but they couldn't give uh, full scholarships and I didn't want to pay money you know to go to school even though I, I could have gone to like Columbia or you know I don't know Yale and play basketball or something like there but I wanted to play big time basketball I wanted to play for free and I wanted to play like Right, right away. So I went to Virginia Tech at 17, and uh, it worked out pretty well. And you graduated in three years. I did, yeah. I graduated. I finished when I was 19. 
then our, my junior year was a little disappointing, and I, I didn't want to leave, so I stayed an extra year and did a master's, like like this online health education master's that they offered at the time. I don't know if they still offer it. How'd your uh, your college educated? You said graduate school educated parents um, feel about you taking the athletic route. Oh, they were happy. My father was the kind of person who would call into sports talk radio and, <laughs> and argue argue a point for for ten minutes. He'd he'd like leave the room, you know. He'd go outside and like pace, like and they'd take Jackson from Stone Mountain, you know. And he'd he'd argue about some finer point about uh, what someone had said about <laughs> about a prospective trade or something like that. Like he he was a big time basketball fan, and the, and the idea that I could play in the Big East and then later on the ACC, like. That's, that was special. I mean, because I mean, they knew I was going to take care of the schoolwork, you know. It wasn't like a, a either-or proposition. Mm-hmm. Um, it was great that I was going to go to college for free. It was great that I was going to be able to play basketball on TV. And uh, there was never any pushback from them. Mm. They've always supported me, and, and I was pretty lucky in that. And you did take care of the academics. Is, was that hard to balance those two things, the sports and the um, academics? I mean, at the time, it didn't seem that way because uh, that's just what I had to do. But I, I talked to other friends and they'd have all this free time, you know, like you finish your class at like one thirty, and then you got all afternoon to just sit around, you know, do whatever you want to, you can study, whatnot. Um, but for me, you know, for basketball and colleges, don't let anyone tell you different. It's a full-time job. You know, let's say you work out for an hour and a half in the morning, you got study hall and you got a three-hour practice then you got to treat your, treat your body afterwards. Then you might have road trips in the middle of the week. And it's, a, it's a huge time commitment. But at the time, I mean, you're 18, you're 19, you do what you have to do, and like, whatever. But at least some college jocks, you know, miss out on the educational side. It's true. They miss out on it, but the problem is that it's not conducive to, to learning. I mean, they call you a student athlete, but really, the athletics come first. Like, if you have a test on Thursday, and you have a game on Thursday, and the game is in Miami, you will be at the game, and you'll be making up the test later. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, guys aren't necessarily prepared coming in you know, through no fault of their own through the, the educational system and, and whatnot and then you come in you're thrown in the fire you have to do the same work as other people do even though they're more prepared than you are and you have to do it in less time and you got to keep your scholarship that's what's paying for school you know what i mean people say oh you know why you know you know why complain about athletic scholarships you know they people get financial aid they get academic scholarships blah 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 but to keep your academic scholarship you have to keep a certain grade point average so the work you do is like directly beneficial to you keeping your scholarship Whereas with a sport, it's detrimental to it. The more work you do to keep your scholarship is going to hurt your academics no matter what. You know what I mean? Right. Every hour yeah. you spend in the gym is an, is an hour you're not doing something like for a class, which is, I don't know, I, mean, I think something that gets overlooked, especially now with this whole union thing and with this uh, controversy around co- playing college athletes, it's, it's just not like other things, and you can't, you can't compare it to those things. It's, it's not comparable to, to other scholarships, to other methods, you know? Right, right. And that, isn't there a distraction if you're a star, too? I mean, treated differently from other students? Um, you get a lot of attention, you have a lot of distractions, right? Yeah, and I mean, you're talking about 19-year-old kids. Yeah. I mean, everyone knows you, random people want to take pictures with you, you know. And even if you're the most level-headed kid, like, if I had a big game and that game was on SportsCenter, and if I knew that my highlights were going to be on SportsCenter, and they, they come in the last 10 minutes of the hour, and I was in a, in a lunch hall, 
if I'm finished at, at 12.45 and my dunk is going to come on at 12.51 <laughs> and I'm sitting near the, near the television, like, I'm not leaving until 12.52. You're, like, and then you're going to see on the TV, you're going to see me and be like, oh, wasn't that you? And I'm like, yes, yes, it was. Like, <laughs> that was me on TV. You know what I mean? You, you can't avoid it. And, and at that age, you, you definitely can't avoid it. It's very hard to compare that experience to a normal college experience. It's fun, um, but I don't know that it's necessarily the best way for someone who's trying to get a degree, you know. Yeah, I'm wondering how you managed to handle it. You came in early, so you were already even younger than the average college student. Um, you were 16 when you started. You turned 17 soon after, right? I, I came at the end of June, and I turned 17, like, in July. Oh, okay. In the summer session. Okay. So, but you were a bit yeah. younger already. Um, are you unusually level-headed? <laughs> well, mature. Yes. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'm, I'm no different than anyone else. I could, I could always do the work. You know, that that's, was kind of my saving grace. You know, I studied something that I had an interest in. Um, I studied film theory. It wasn't like I had to like drag myself to some calculus class. If I didn't make class, it meant I was missing a Hitchcock movie. It, it meant I was missing like. <laughs> A Western, you know, we studied Westerns, we studied horror films. It meant I was missing something that I loved, which is, again, another luxury. Um, I, I, no one was forcing me to do anything. And if I didn't want to go see Shadow of a Doubt or Psycho or whatnot, then it was something that I was missing out that I would, and I would have been poorer for it. it which is strange because our, for us, the film theory was under the communications department. And I think a lot of athletes go to get steered into communication, which is, I don't really know what that ends up being at other schools, but for us, it was me and one other guy, but we were the only athletes in the department. If there had been a lot of athletes in a certain department at a school, and this goes for most schools, but people will sort of lower their expectations for, for what you're going to do, because they know you're going to miss class and, you know, and what have you. But for us, since there weren't any athletes and they never had any athletes, then, you know, the expectations were the same as they were for any other student, and that really helped me a lot. Your website has, um, <laughs> it, there's not much there, but there are a couple of frames from what looks like it might be, is it a Fellini film? Yeah, that's La Dolce Vita. Is it La Dolce Classic. Vita? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought I recognized it. I haven't seen that movie in, oh God, I don't know how long. But uh, you picked out a couple of frames with some interesting subtitles. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, Marcello is leaving a, leaving a cab. He's looking for his father. His father's at a cafe and he's like, hey, he's like, where's my father? And the guy says, Oh, he's over there behind that black man. You know what I mean? The only black person in a Fellini film, probably. <laughs> and he just there's this guy, this is this black guy at a cafe reading a book, you know, minding his own business in the middle of Rome. And there's Marcello's father, like, behind him. Like, it's like a 10-second part of that film. But for me, it's like, because I love the movie. And uh, it's, for me, it's just, like, very instructive, like, the, the black man in the background in Rome, in the middle of it all, but kind of, like, just useful as a signpost. Exactly, I mean? like, exactly, yeah. Yeah. You no, know, he's he's there but he's not there. He's in it but not of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh yeah, I enjoy that. And I don't I don't really have anything to sell, so my website can be as cryptic as it needs to be, <laughs> you know. Well, you know, when I looked at that I thought, okay, I, I got your meaning exactly and I thought and you are a, a black man who's spent a lot of time in Europe, so I imagine somebody's probably said, you know, look, over there near the black <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely because, well, first of all, I can't complain too much because, like, I got to say that being an African-American in Europe or in the world, you 
have a totally different experience than someone who's like legitimately like from Africa, like first generation, you know, the road is a lot easier when they see that you speak English, you know, people don't treat you as this threat, this invader, like coming to take their jobs and their women, you know, they're just kind of like, Oh, maybe he's a tourist. Maybe he's just some guy, you know, or maybe he's famous or something like that. But it's definitely funny. I mean, you, I had people be like, you know, I was in a town in Bosnia and I was out somewhere and like, I met this girl and she's like, yeah, you know, um, actually I met this black guy. I met this guy from Kenya the other day. Like maybe you guys would like each other. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know him? Right, like, right. No, <laughs> no, no, I don't know him, but thank you for, uh, thank you for that because it, it would be nice, but, but no, I don't know him, you know, and, and it's rarely met in a malicious way. Like I have a thing where like, I sing a lot. Like I have, uh, I'm just weird that way. So I'll be walking around. I'll just like I'm be singing something to myself, and like someone would be like, you know, hey, like, God, like, black people are great singers. <laughs> <laughs> what a beautiful voice you have. <laughs> you know, and these things that people have kind of become hesitant to do in the states because you know they have learned that over and over. It's a little bit rude to to draw attention to things like that, but it comes from this really childlike fascination and like this really innocent place if you can kind of separate yourself from the annoyance of it because it is annoying but if you can kind of be a little bit empathetic from it it's it actually be a little bit endearing um i i always tell the story i was i was in germany i was at a friend's house and i was eating i ate brunch right and with, with his whole family and uh this grandma there grandma's like let's say 85 was like born in 30s was a teenager during the war you know what i mean like old german woman everyone ends up cleaning the dishes so me and grandma are sitting in the living room and uh i have pants on and i'm like like i've like crossed my legs and like you can see like the tiniest bit of my ankle and i've noticed that this woman is staring at my ankle and i'm like okay like you know i speak a little german because i learned it in school and uh looking at her she's looking at me she's looking at my ankle she's looking at me looking at my ankle and i'm like you know what's up grandma like what's going on and she looks at my ankle and she says wow like you're just as black down there as you are everywhere else. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you know, it, it is like, <laughs> I'm all one color, you know what I mean? But it's like she, it's like a true, and she's never had a black person in the house, like never oh, breathed man. near a black person, never breathed the same air as a black person, like never touched, shaking, shaking someone's hand, you know? And like, you, it's funny, and it's funny, and it's like, it's rude, I guess, but it's, it comes from like this really, like fascinated place that I think if you if you can allow yourself to relax a little bit because you have to you know you can either laugh or you can cry and uh, it, it's it's interesting. Well, you you know not only are you in places where in many cases they don't have much experience of Africans or African Americans, um, but you can't really be invisible also because you're you're six feet nine, right? Right, right. Uh, and so you're going to stand out almost anywhere. Well, I've been this way for a long time. It would be different <laughs> if I woke up tomorrow and like I actually had everyone staring at me. I'd, I'd kind of be a little bit taken aback by it. But a lot of people have talked about this and written about it in terms of like what the public gaze does to a person and like gaze renders objects or people like self-policing. Like so, generally, it's like talked about with women, right? So like having the gaze or having the public gaze or the male gaze or whatever, it forces you to act a certain way and uh, according to people's expectations, but when you're either a local celebrity or like very tall or in some way abnormal or out of the ordinary, like you have to get used to it and you assume, like, you know, like there was a, 
there's like a test for narcissism, right? And like the first question is like, one of the ways you can know you're a narcissist is like, if you assume that when you, like, when I walk into a room, I feel everyone is looking at me. You know what I mean? <laughs> and if you say that, generally, you have some kind of like, some kind of complex. But if you are, if you're 6'9 and you're black and you're in Europe, like, everyone is looking at you, you know? And it, it's just like this relationship you have with other people's gaze and with people's expectations of you. You know, in a lot of ways, um, you know, I am like very stereotypical. Like I'm black. I play basketball. I like to sing. <laughs> I like to dance. You know what I mean? Like I eat fried chicken. Um, like there's all these things that you do conform to certain stereotypes, but in the same way sort of subvert them. I don't know. I, I don't know if, if I'm if I'm coming across with what I'm, with what I'm oh, saying. Oh yeah, no, no, no. It's really interesting. It's something I wanted to talk to you about. You know, I mean, that's another stereotype that people who are, you know, kind of uh, careful might not want to say, whoa, you're tall, you're black, do you play basketball? That's like a really insulting stereotype to some people, but you do, right. you know? I do. Like, I actually do. That's what I do, <laughs> you know? Uh. Um, but do you feel like um, what you just described is really interesting, you know, knowing that in a lot of situations people are looking at you, even if they're averting their eyes, you know, you know, they've clocked you, you know? Um, yeah, you know exactly. Like you know, like like a girl whispers to her friend, and her friend like gives like the fake look to the left, and like I'm gonna stretch my <laughs> neck to the right. You know, like like you know they're looking, and uh, it's strange to like again, like for any other person, like if you assume everyone's looking at you, you have some sort of complex. But, like you know, you know it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's funny, um, but you deal with it. You know, it's better than it's better than everyone like ignoring you. I guess. Well, what about there are much worse things? Well, what about the projections then? Um, so one of them would be, oh come on, let's be let's be honest, man. The women, you know, th- have all kinds of thoughts. Boy, I bet he's good and bad. Uh, you know, something exotic and you know, completely fascinating about him. You know, so you must get that. Yeah, I mean, you do, especially in places where where you're a novelty, like where there are not a lot of black people, and then there are definitely like especially given the way that like, culture is disseminated, like there's a certain subset of people in the world who like fetishize this sort of aggressive black masculinity. So like, yeah, you know, they like watch a lot of rap videos and they like, <laughs> you know, they see that you have a tattoo or something and they want you to be like this, like big mean rapper person. And yeah. like this, it's complicated. And I, I think that, I don't know. It's, it's always hard to, to judge why people want what they want, but it can be a little uncomfortable if, like, you feel like people are fetishizing an idea of of you or what you could be or what you're supposed to be. Um, but it's unavoidable, and the longer you're around them, the more people you interact with, and you can kind of tell what that is and what that looks like and how to stay away from it um, if that's not what you're into. I mean, I know a lot of people who, like, you know, they're like, oh, whatever, I'm going to play up into this, and I'm going to meet a lot of girls, and that's, the, that's what I'm going to do. Right, you know? right, right. Take advantage um, which of is, it. Which is also, you know, a le- legitimate way to live, you know. So um, for me, not so much. Uh, it's, it's not something I can do, but it's funny. Um, and you can't blame people. I mean, people are attracted to the novel. So what are you going to do at the end of the day? I- I'm curious to know whether you feel like any urgency, though, to, like, set them straight. Like, okay you're already making assumptions about me, a good many of which are wrong. Uh, they're not guessing that you're this intellectual uh, guy who doesn't just play basketball, right? 
Do you ever right. feel like I'm going to blow your mind and show you that I'm not who you well, think I am? Well, when I did, I did, when I was younger, I did. I, I walked around with this huge chip on my shoulder because everyone assumed I was an idiot. And, uh, you know, I meet people and I like use big words in conversation and like, <laughs> you know, like, you know, make a point to argue with them or like talk about this, that and other thing. But at this point, like I've kind of made my peace with it and it's very difficult to go through life trying to prove things to everyone. Like, for example, a couple of years ago, I was in New York and I was sitting here talking to this girl, like pretty girl. We're talking at a bar and she's like a med student. Right. And, uh, so she knows I'm a basketball player and she says, so the first thing she says to me is like, Oh, in the hospital, we use a centrifuge. And I was like, oh, cool. She's like, oh, a centrifuge is where they spin things really fast, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I know what a centrifuge is. And uh, she's like, oh, no, it's okay. It's okay. Right. So then, oh, no. Like, then, like 20 minutes later, conversation's going well. I'm thinking, like, wow, like, we're really making some headway. And uh, she says, yeah, so the other day, like, blah, 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 we we're doing this thing with corpses. Uh, a corpse is a dead body. Oh, by no. The way. Oh, <laughs> no. And I said, like, oh, you, no. listen, I know what a corpse is, you know? And then you like this realization that the last half hour I was talking to this person who thought I was a complete idiot. You know what I mean? Like, oh, just to re completely reevaluate the whole conversation because, like, this person thinks I don't know what a corpse is, <laughs> you know? But uh, I, that is sort of the thing that kind of comes with the territory because people think. People think that you're going to be stupid, and if they d if they realize that you're not stupid, then it's kind of this weird thing where they're like, congratulate you for being you, you know. Like, oh, there's a certain type of liberal person who kind of has lived their life with the idea that black people are equal and that there are like smart black people, but they never met any, right? And then when they meet you and they think, like, wow, like I'm so right for you know you you validated my ideals, oh, you know, man. and they're like, you know, you're so articulate. I want you to meet blah blah blah. blah. I want you to do this, that, and other thing. And it's kind of this other side of that expectation of stereotypes, even when you feel like you're subverting it. So, I mean, I don't know, the, the, really the best way to live is try not to think about it at all and just not try to prove anything to anyone. And, like, if you meet someone and you connect with them and they discover that you have something to say, then, you know, great. But there are, I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of people who think I'm really stupid. And, like, uh, I've, like, learned to live with that. Um, well, you're an intellectual type guy. I mean, I picked that up right away from your from your writing. Now, there are guys in basketball who aren't like that, but um, I've always had the impression that the game itself requires intelligence. Yeah, it does because it's it's very fluid. You can maybe not know, like maybe not have been be very well read or be good at math, but you can have a relationship with your body, and your brain can have a relationship with your limbs in such a way that you can you know perform or make the right pass or make the right movement and be agile and it's a certain type of intelligence that is not easily quantifiable and is really easily dismissed because most of the people who are gatekeepers don't have it you know what i mean so right, exactly. why should they appreciate it yeah you know what i mean yeah yeah um i want to go back to the point uh at which you were finishing up in college and wanting to go on in basketball i imagine your dream was to go to the nba yeah, yeah, definitely. And how close um, did you come, and, and, and how did you end up um, going overseas instead? Well, what happened was, to, to, to tell the truth, like, I had a very good junior year, and if I had been, again, thinking strategically, I would have just left. You know, I averaged, like, 15 points, 7 rebounds. I was only 19, you know, so I was, like, the same age as a freshman. I could have probably gone out and been a – I would have been a draft pick for sure. Um, but I had a very difficult – kind of into that year uh, with my father passing away. 
I just wasn't in a state of mind to be able to do anything for the next, you know, nine, ten months. And I didn't have a very good senior year. I mean, the team did well, but I struggled. And then after that, I went to a pre-draft camp, and I was the leading scorer there. I kind of had come out of that kind of funk that I had been in the last couple months. But it wasn't enough. So I went to training camp. I mean, I went to summer league with the Nuggets, and then I had a deal in Germany. And it was, for me, it was, it was a lot of money. It was $100,000, like, after mm. taxes, mm-hmm. apartment, a car. I spoke German. And uh, I'd never been. I, I didn't have a passport. You know, I'd never been out of the country. I said, you know, why not? And I did. And like I said, it was transformational. And it was definitely easier for me because I spoke the language, but it was a great way to kind of dip your toe into culture because there were a lot of Americans there. Everyone spoke English. And I had a great experience. Later on, like the next year, I went to training camp with the Suns, which was also a great experience because that was the year they had Shaq and Grant Hill and Steve Nash. And it was an amazing locker room. Um, And I was there for a couple of weeks which I'll never forget. And then I went to the D-League. You know, but in the D-League, you're playing for no money. You're playing in North Dakota. You got back-to-backs in, from Bismarck, North Dakota, to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, negative 45 degree. And you're making no money. So it wasn't a life for me. And I wasn't, I wasn't willing to wait around there and try to get into the NBA. Um, I went back to Germany. And then since then, my career has kind of progressed in Europe. And I've kind of been playing in Europe and really enjoying it. Um, I mean, for sure I'd be richer, definitely. I'd have a lot more money. But the experience has certainly been richer in a, in a lot of ways because you're seeing the world, but you're being paid well for it. You're meeting people. You know, you, you have the chance to to travel. Um, I mean, yeah, it, cha- it changed my life. It literally changed my life. Um, How many teams know? have you played for? Uh, one team, in, two teams in Germany team in Bosnia, a team in France, a team in Ukraine, a team in Bahrain, and then a team in the D-League. So that's like eight teams, uh, seven teams. I've been seven years, so well, one, one, year, one team, two years. And, and uh, why all the moving around? Well, it, it depends um, basically where the best opportunity is, where the, where the most money is, with, which, whether a team is going to play in European competitions or not. Um, just what, what the best situation is. Um, you know, you work with your agent and every offseason try to figure it out. Um, sometimes you'll be somewhere for a year or two years. So the contracts are generally shorter than they are in the NBA, and the, the job security is a little bit lower. Because um, teams tend to change from year to year, especially in basketball, because it's not, it's not quite as stable as, uh, as soccer is. But, um, yeah, I've, I've been very lucky. I've been very fortunate. Um, so that kind of rootlessness, moving around, being itinerant like that all the time, doesn't wear on you? It does wear on you, but I've been pretty easily adaptable, and I've really been lucky in meeting, like, wonderful people. So, like, like for example, I, I need to go back to France in a couple of weeks for, for a friend's wedding, and then I'll, then I'll go back to Croatia, and then I'll, I'll, I'll be in these places because it's difficult to maintain relationships, but kind of you kind of have a wealth of relationships and and they're like little pieces of yourself in different, different countries. And, yeah, it's not something that you can do for 30 or 40 years, but if you're in your 20s and you're energetic, there, are, there aren't very many things that are better. Pretty exciting. Um, what's your favorite country to play in, then? Um, that's difficult. One of the biggest things is that their variation in the professionalism of teams is really large. Like, in Germany or somewhere, you can expect to get paid, like, 
on the date that you're supposed to get paid. If you're supposed to get paid on the 30th and the 30th is a Saturday, you'll be paid Friday, like not Monday. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas there are other places where a team will be three months late and not think anything of it, and no one on the team will care because it's just normal. Like, that's how things are there. Like, you know, especially given the crisis, um, it's a little bit, it's been a little bit exacerbated. In Germany, I got all my money on time. France, you get all your money on time. You know, but I'm playing for this other team. I won't say where, but I like them. I like them. They ended up giving me my money, but at one point, they were three months late. They owe me three months' salary, which at the, at the time, you know, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a big number, but it was a lot of money. I didn't have any money. So I'm sitting at this coffee shop. I order espresso. Espresso comes to, like, a euro um, or whatever the equivalent is in the local currency. And uh, the, the owner of the team, not the owner of the team, but the guy who signs the checks, uh, is, like, nearby. And I, I go to pay for my coffee, and the waiter comes, and he's like, He's like, no, no, the gentleman over there has already taken care of your coffee. And the guy is like, he's like, he's like no, no, I have. I have no problem. Huh? And I'm like, look, man, I appreciate the coffee, but you owe me, like, you owe me three months' salary. And he's like being super magnanimous. Like, he's like, no, no, like, you will never pay for a coffee when you're around me. I'm like, no, I, like, I appreciate the gesture, but I really need that money. You know what I mean? Like, and, you know, after, like, another month, they, they, they pay me a month. And then maybe, like, a year later, they gave me the rest of it, but. It's funny, but it's normal there, you know. People don't people don't bat an eye at that. What's uh, what's basketball culture like there? Well, it depends. Um, like for example, in the Middle East, is not very much. I mean, Bahrain actually has a really good fans, but we, we for example, we played in a tournament in Doha, and no one came to the games. I mean, they spend a lot of money on the teams, but there's no, there's no. Well, first of all, there's no women at the games, so that's like a big thing. Like because in in the Middle East, like. You know, there's all these issues with women in public space in general, but, like, there there aren't any women at the games except for, like, there's, like, some foreign women that, like, are interested in sports that might, might show up, you know. And so that makes a big difference. But places like Germany, you know, there's small gyms, but they're packed with people, like, going crazy. They don't know the rules, but they love it, you know. They're, like, beating on drums and whatnot. And the French are also very good and, and a little bit more genteel, um, you know, in the, in the audience. But probably the most knowledgeable fans are in Yugoslavia, like yeah. the former Yugoslav, like Serbians, Croatians, Macedonians, and Montenegrins. They they really, really know basketball and they love it and like the intricacies of it. Like they'll appreciate like a good second pass, or they'll appreciate like you know what I mean. Like if if someone mm-hmm. makes a nice move, like not a dunk or a three pointer, but like a great bounce pass, people will will like stand up and applaud. You know. Mm-hmm. Like they're really, really knowledgeable people, and they're, they're really passionate about it. And, and you see, really, most of the best coaches and a lot of the best players come from that region, um, which I, I didn't have an appreciation before, but now um, you, know, you see it everywhere. Well, yeah, I mean, they've produced some legendary players, some legendary teams, uh, before, especially before, I guess, the breakup of Yugoslavia. Do you, yeah. have, do you have any idea why that is, why basketball took root there so strongly? I can't tell you. I can tell you that they're very – I mean – Especially Serbians are very like I don't want to say militaristic, but they're like a very they have a very strong sense of order. So like most of the top coaches are Serbian um, in Europe, especially. And I mean even they, and they and they're like they run really tight ships and they're known for being strict, but they're they get results. And the Croatians are, are a little bit more lax, but they're very they're also very great coaches as well. Hmm. Um, but I mean even if you look, I mean they claim Greg Popovich because I think he's. He's Serbian in some, so 
some way. Not that you need to be strict to be a basketball coach, but it, it definitely doesn't hurt when you have a sense of responsibility and like a, a sense. And, and they just work, man. They work. They practice really hard and they really care. They don't really have a lot of money, but like from a young age, players are playing like all positions. And I have a lot of respect for them hmm. um, in general. Hmm. Just the whole region. Like playing out there definitely it was the best. You know, not the most athletic players or the most skilled players, but just the most cerebral basketball there is. I think mm. in that in the in the league, it's called the ABBA League. It's like the former Yugoslavian league. There's teams like Partizan, Sabona, um, Red Star, Belgrade, like really, really good teams, really, really good basketball, and um, just a great place to play basketball-wise. You know, how many uh, Americans are there on the teams you you've been playing for in general? Uh, it varies. Like sometimes there are you know five or six guys, and sometimes in some countries there's only one. It depends. There's, there's different laws depending on like they want because usually they want to protect the domestic product for the national teams. They uh, want to develop young players. So they have a they limit can't. limit on imported yeah, exactly. Americans. If, you, if there weren't <laughs> any limits, then you each team would just sign six Americans and pay them twenty five thousand dollars. You know, because I could find you ten guys. I could find you a hundred guys that would play for twenty five thousand dollars anywhere tomorrow and be able to play you know what i mean like yeah. we produce so many players so yeah and in order to keep that to keep that down and to keep the salaries up and to keep the quality of play for the young guys up like give younger players a chance to play then they they, they have to restrict america so i bet you're you're kind of a prize though i mean at times when you're acquired or when you sign on with a team yeah i mean depending on if there's only one american like you're expected to be the guy like you're expected to score a lot and shoot a lot and if you lose then you know it's your fault a little pressure Uh, there yeah a lot of pressure (laughs) but then 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 you're paid accordingly you know in leagues where there are five or six americans the salaries are much lower in leagues where there's only two americans and there's a premium on like on that those positions then you're you know two or three americans and you're talking about you know like real money like really significant money Um, yeah so well it comes to the territory it's interesting that you know that whole phenomenon has been going on for a while. Like now we have guys in the NBA who, whose fathers you know played overseas: Tony Parker, Kobe Bryant. Right. Yeah, I mean it's just because of probably the NBA in general has done a, a great job of globalizing and and and, and basketball is such an inexpensive sport to organize. You yeah, know? yeah. Like it's not like baseball where you have a lot have to have a lot of outdoor space and there's really arcane rules and football. I mean, forget it. Like, you can't explain football to, you can't explain American football to, like, the average person. Like, you know, there's all these rules, strange scoring systems. You've got to have equipment and helmets and yeah. 100 yards of space. But for basketball, you can play it pretty much anywhere, and you can, you can do it without committing a lot of money to a budget, you know. So, like, aside from soccer, which is always going to be number one, I mean, basketball is, like, you know, probably the, the second biggest sport worldwide. You can yeah. play it in the Philippines. You can play it in the Ukraine. You can play it. And in South Korea and Iran and in uh, Libya, like wh- what have you, like you can always, if you can play basketball and if you can shoot a wide open jumper and you're over a certain height and you're athletic and you understand it, like you can play basketball. There's like the fourth league in Germany, you can play in it. You'll get five hundred dollars a week. You'll practice twice. You know what I mean? You'll go on some team dinners, like at like all you can eat buffets, but you can play basketball for a living. I'm thinking that you know. Um an earlier generation of African-American really accomplished people went to Europe like writers and, you know, singers, uh, artists, and and were widely admired by, you know, the people who love those particular 
things, whether they love the writing or they love the the jazz or something. The Europeans really now you've got Americans going over there who who do this also very special thing, right? Play this game better than most Europeans. Do you get people looking up to you then, as you're from the 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 real you know home of this art form in a way? You know, <laughs> you're connected yeah, to mean, the it's source. Funny, I mean, like you when you're black and you're in Paris and you're like thinking about you know the fact that. Sidney Boucher was there. Right. Christine Baker was there. Like, you know, you're reading Baldwin talking about being in a foreign country and living in a, in a village where people stare at him and then being in a village and reading Baldwin in a, in a village is like this meta thing. <laughs> and it, again, like, it's a, it's a luxury. Not that, not that you can ever compare those two things, but I think that there's definitely a lot of overlap between those kind of uh, experiences and th- that was definitely at a different time I mean for them it was more of a refuge to get out and to like before you're talking about before the before the Civil Rights Act and and, and that kind of pre 1960s space or, or during that time you, you can't really compare it but it's it's definitely something that you think about I mean I think everyone who walks through Paris thinks like oh Hemingway was here and or you know James Joyce was here or they used to eat there and that cafe is still there um and it's, it's, I think it's doubly so when you're doing as as a minority, and there's so few minority experiences. And face it, it's not that common for black people to travel. Like it doesn't happen um, for, a, for a number of reasons. So when you do have that opportunity, you don't take it for granted. And I think maybe with a lot of basketball players, you know, the first couple of years, the guys get caught up in their you know in their rooms, they're playing video games and and whatnot, but. Once you realize what's out there, that that okay, like just the most trite example is that the the castle from the Disney uh, logo is like you can go to that castle. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and like everyone's mom wants to go to the Disney castle, right. you know, and take pictures at the Disney castle or or what have you. Like it's these these experiences that the game facilitates, which you don't get from being a, a different type of athlete. And if you had if I had lived in a different generation, then I, I wouldn't have had. Um, so I'm always very conscious of that, and I'm always trying to make an effort to to see what there is to be seen, and um, hopefully I'll be able to, con- to continue to continue to do it. You wrote a really uh, interesting essay for uh, True Hoop, the blog, uh, ESPN sponsored blog, uh, called "Exporting the N Word." Uh, right. Published, I think, last December. Right. And uh, it starts with you telling a story about being in Bosnia. Herzegovina, uh, right. where you were playing, right, in a Croatian village. Right, right. And some kids uh, yeah. say, yeah. what, hey, my N-word, you know? Yeah, they, you know, they they walk up and they, they don't call me a, a nigger per se, but they're like, hey, my nigger. Like, you know, they, they people, like I said, like people watch these, these clips and they like, especially children, I mean, of a certain age, like come under the impression that like this is how black people talk to each other, like. That's a term of endearment or what have you. It, I, I was probably the first black person they'd seen, and like it was the first opportunity to like try this thing out or whatever. And uh, yeah, I don't. You never really can know what's going on with people, but it's it's something that you always have to be conscious of. I mean, and that I am conscious of when I'm traveling, and you, it, it's not really avoidable. But um, these kids were using it. You know, it seems like from your description. In a pretty innocent way. They're picking up on the use of it in hip-hop and stuff, right? Thinking of it as just sort of a term of endearment or right. like, hey, bro, or something like that, right? Right, yeah. Uh, 
And yeah. but for you, <laughs> no, no, it's not like that. I mean, knowing not, history, not, I mean, not from a, not from some little white kid. No. Yeah. 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 <laughs> to put it plainly, like no, like there are people that can call me call me that, but like that, those are not those people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Right. Which is why I'm saying N word in this conversation. Exactly. Um, but uh, it's really one of the best essays I've ever read about that subject, about the complexity okay. of that word. Um, I don't know if you've ever read the book that Randall Kennedy wrote about it. You know, he's a, um, do you know, he is a legal scholar at Yale, but he wrote, yeah. a, he wrote a whole book about these issues. But I imagine, uh, I imagine you could, <laughs> and I, I imagine for me it would be a very exhausting book to read. Oh no, I think you'd like it. I think you'd like it. He's, he's a really good writer. Um, yeah. uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the, you come to a conclusion, tell me the conclusion you come to, uh, which goes through a lot of subtlety, a lot of nuance in this in this essay? Well, just, I mean, I don't know. I hope that I won't hear a lot of non-black people using it. I kind of understand how, especially young people can think that it's okay. And for, and maybe somebody told them that's okay. Cause like everyone's different. Like everyone's not me. I, I've been around people who've been like, Oh no, you can say it like whatever you want. I have to kind of be like, all right, you know, this is the reason why people are coming up to me. Cause like there are certain people who don't, who don't care. I'm not one of those people, but I, I understand it. I mean, basically it's just like, and generally, like, don't be an ass. You know, try to be conscious of other people's experiences and like consider it. And like, if someone asks you not to say it, don't say it. Or you know, try to be conscious of what effect your words have on other people um, in general. Um, but it's you know, it's different. It's difficult to talk about, and and it's something that's probably going to be talked about for years and years and years and years to come because it, there is a lot of complexity to it and. It is difficult to talk about it with nuance because it's so charged. The reason that it is so charged is because there are other structural things that have not been fixed and won't be fixed anytime soon. So it's like it's very difficult to talk about it with any sort of finality before there is like you know the, for to have like equality of language you know in a true sense you kind of have to have a quality of opportunity and, and and all these other things that come with it like like people wouldn't be bothered having someone call that if like the black unemployment rate wasn't three times what the white unemployment mm-hmm, rate was. Like, mm-hmm. you know, those, are, those are things that, like, it's like, well, why are you so sensitive? Words are words, but like, it's a symptom of, you know, it's, 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 it's a brick in, like, a much larger wall. Um, yeah, isn't it amazing that a, a single word can um, carry all that complexity, you know, the American racial situation? Um, yeah, well, I mean, it's, I don't know if you read this reparations article, uh, you know, it's funny. I wondered if you, are you a Ta-Nehisi Coates fan? I am. I'm a big fan. I read everything he writes, and I post almost everything he writes for other people to read, because it was, it was great. Um, but it's just like what I was saying, like, it's not the word. It's the fact that in Stone Mountain, Georgia, there's a carving of Stonewall Jackson on the, on the mountain. It's the fact that, like, the incarceration rate, and the, 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 it's the fact that, like, they're, they're getting rid of early voting in, in North Carolina, and, and there's voter ID laws. Like, it, there's a lot of things that that is is a symbol of and like that's like not not the half of it that's just the easy marker of like where you stand on it but it, that's not like that's not the larger issue the larger issue is so much bigger than that and i think if if anyone listening to this haven't hasn't read it it's it's a great piece it was in the atlantic it's called the case for reparations um i highly recommend it yeah and, it's... and he said it better than i think anyone anyone has not and not that i'm like I think there are going to be reparations, but the, the concept of having a reckoning, a national reckoning of what happened and, you know, like never again, the, these concepts that exist in other countries, 
which, like I said, I lived in Germany for three years, so I, I have to kind of come at it from that. The fact that, that that's recognized, and you would never see a carving of, of Heinrich Himmler on like a mountain in Germany. Like you couldn't do yeah, it. Yeah, I was going to say. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, not, it's not possible because he was a traitor. You know, like you, you can, you can, you can do it. Or unfathomable. Or the uh, the swastika flying above yeah, uh, government uh, building. Possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, but like, but the it's people don't want to talk about it. And like for example, I was I was in I was in the Ukraine uh, until the end of February when I had to leave because of the because of the revolution. Um, well, oh, the revolution wow. and kind of the counter revolution yeah. happened, and I was in the southeast. Huh. Um, and I'm I'm trying to, attempting to write about that now. Hopefully, I'll have something readable soon for, for True Hoop. But seeing a conflict brewing and then seeing the aftermath of it, like, you know, living in Bosnia, going, going to Sarajevo, going to... I, I don't know, I've, I've, for whatever reason, I've been coincidentally in these places where, like, very terrible things have happened and people have either, uh, like, dealt with it or not, or very terrible things were about to happen. It's funny that there's a sort of a commonality uh, among those things, and, and there's things that people would prefer to forget. And especially in the South, they have. The, you know, the more of the world you see, then the more either you're, sometimes the more you're disappointed by it or the more you're uh, surprised by it. Or I, I, it's very difficult to explain coherently, but it's just all been very, very interesting. Um. Coleman, you're 28 now, is that right? Uh, I'll be 28 in a month. Oh, okay. So um, what do you see yourself doing um, going forward? I mean, obviously you've, you've got some good years ahead in basketball, but uh, beyond that? Yeah, for the longest time, I thought I was going to go to like law school or business school or something like that, but I doesn't, it doesn't seem like I'm – I don't think I'm going to be cut out for that. Um, I'd like to do something that's a little bit more creative, and hopefully if I can play long enough to kind of afford myself that flexibility to – to do what I want to do. I mean, I always like to write. I don't know if it'll be like professionally, but I'll be doing it. But I, it, something visual would be nice. Um, like I said, I kind of have a bit of a film background, so I could do something with that. I mean, I'm open. You know, now I just try to like stay open to ideas and, and read what I can, learn what I can, watch what I can. Mm. And hopefully the sum of those experiences and I'll have something to draw back on and a little bit of money to like, to afford to be able to fail, you know, because I don't know, that's one of those things where like a lot of people are artists or what have you, but like they have that family money or they have like that backstop, you know, like where you can go and paint for three years. And like, if you're no good at it, then you're not going to be on the street. Obviously that which stops a lot of minorities from, from doing it. So for me, it's kind of like making my own kind of genius grant where like, you know, you have that money to be able to extend yourself and take some risks and, throw some things on the wall and see what sticks. So I, I don't know. I mean, I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic, but uh, it's too early to say. Can you imagine staying in, in Europe after uh, you're done with the basketball career? Perhaps, but, you know, not too long. You know, like, you don't want to be away from the soil too long. Uh-huh. I, at this point, like, I'm someone who's just traveled, but I don't want to be like a, like a capital E, like, expatriate, like, <laughs> going to, like, karaoke bars, <laughs> like... <laughs> You know what I mean? Singing, singing "Sweet Home Alabama" on Wednesday night. You, you know think you, I mean? like, you you think there's something sort of um, unreal about that existence? No, not not that it's not that it's unreal. It's just that like I'm not I'm not a nationalist in any way. I'm like a kind of an anti-nationalist. But there's something there's something to be said. I mean, first of all, like not a lot of black people overseas. 
it's great, but I mean, there's there's something to be said for that. Um, and second, like, you know, specifically New York, like, I really, really love. I'd love to get a chance to like live here longer, but I, I could definitely see see living in Europe or kind of splitting time. But I I, I don't think that I'm going to be spending ten, eleven months out of the year like away from the country mm-hmm. indefinitely. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's a little difficult. You want to spend time with your family. I don't see my family as much as I should. Um, I try, but I don't. I don't see them as much as I should. I can't be like that for fifty years or whatever. Right, right. Um, I mentioned this in an email I sent to you that I'd uh, seen somewhere that you were working on a novel. Well, this is what I did. I wrote like six chapters of a novel, and then I told everyone, "Hey, I'm writing a novel." <laughs> and people would ask me, "Like, what are you doing at parties?" And I'd be like, "Yeah, I play basketball, but I'm also working on this novel." <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I kind of like really into the idea of writing a novel more than not really treating it with the respect that I needed to. So I like, while I would love to, I didn't, I it didn't finish it. And, you know, if I had the chance to do it correctly and with the respect that it deserves and in a serious way and not like just to have written a book, then I would do it. But that was like that whole like chip on your shoulder. Oh, like you think I'm an idiot. Well, actually I'm working on a novel. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm not going to tell you the title, but like I'm working on it and like it's in the books, you know, and it's one of those things where, like, uh, you, you know, you try to prove to people that you're not just what they think they are. But in some ways, I've kind of grown out of that. When I when I actually do something, then I'll have done something. But uh, not yet. Um, who are your biggest influences, though, as a writer? Who's Who do you read a lot, and is there anybody you emulate? Well, I mean, I love Hemingway. But it's tough, because you'll be reading Hemingway, and, like, he'll, you'll read The Sun Also Rises, and then he'll be like... We walked into the bar, and the nigger drummer was oh, smiling geez. with his big lips. <laughs> like, oh, you know, man. like, and he, it's, not, it's not like he's a great writer, but you know, it's like he's, it's tough to love somebody like that. You know you, what I mean? But you know, I, that's, I like a, a, that's complicated. You know, when you look at art, art from the past, I mean, when yeah. you, you, you really admire something, and then you run into an attitude that just completely sucks. Yeah, anything sucks. written before, like, <sighs> 2005 is like stuff suspect. <laughs> <laughs> Like well, you, you can cope with it, but you know you never know what you're going to find. Like, well, is there anybody who can stand that test from no, the I, no, old I, days? They're, they're, I mean, they all they all have their problems, but no, I really enjoy. I mean, I really enjoy like the South American writers like Borges and Bolaño. And I, I enjoy Marquez. I'm influenced by everything I've ever read. I can't point to someone and be like, uh-huh. uh huh, that's your guy. Changed my life. Yeah. I mean, I really enjoy like you know even Douglas Adams. I don't know like the Hitchhikers. What, what the Hitchhikers yeah. Guide? Uh, yeah. Lots of things. I mean, yeah. if you read enough, then for me anyway, I don't know, maybe other people are different, but like if you write, your writing is like the sum total of everything you've read. Yeah. Um, and that is a process that takes a lifetime. So, yeah. Know, I, I couldn't say. How about your basketball influences? Anybody you particularly admire, like in your position? You're power forward, right? Yeah. Um, I really loved uh, Chris Weber when he was with the Kings. Mm. I, you know, if that that's someone who like can play the high post, can pass the ball, can run, can dribble, you know what I mean, can shoot. Someone who like I really enjoyed. I enjoy watching the Spurs in general. Yeah. Um, I mean, actually, one of my great regrets in life is that I never got to run the triangle. I always would have loved to run the triangle. Mm. I mean, because it's really no one runs it because it's complicated. But I was in the D League once, and we played against the LA team, and the LA team the D-League has to run the triangle because, well, had to, because if they got moved up to the Lakers, they had to be ready to run the offense. 
So we ran the offense in practice, and it was like, oh, it was like seeing in color for the first time. I mean, it's beautiful. Because usually as a big man, you, you run around, you set screens, you know, you're not part of the game. You're like just like this, this object, you know, for like the guards to yeah, run yeah. off of or, yeah. or to, you know, to be used. But in, in, a, in, a, in a triangle, you're this facilitator. Like you're a big part of the offense. You're able to make passes. You make decisions. Like the play is based on like what decision you make as a big, which is, is unbelievable, you know. Yeah. You know, instead of like running around, setting screens, run to this point, stand still, and like run into someone, <laughs> run to this other point, stand still. Hopefully you knock this person over. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's what picking, that's what like setting screens is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's difficult. It's effective, but it's not like stimulating, let's say. Well, um, I can't let you go without asking this question. Since we are deep into the NBA playoffs, we know who's going to be in the finals now. Um, right. Who's your team? I don't have a team. I'm one of those people who who likes to watch a good game. You know, if it, I like to watch good basketball. I love the Spurs. I love the way they play. But I like LeBron, too. I mean, I like to see excellent things. And, like, I expect that it's going to be excellent, like it was last year. And uh, I'd love to see LeBron get another championship. I'd love to see the Spurs win, you know, 14 years after their first one. I, I'm going to be happy either way. <laughs> Me, I'm for the Spurs. I want to see those old guys get one last ring. I really Yeah, it would be great. I mean, yeah, they deserve it. I mean, they've been – they're great. But I also wouldn't be upset if, if – if the Heat won, because they're also very good. They are. They are. Coleman, it has been really just a total pleasure talking to you. Thank you. I really, I really appreciated it. Coleman Collins plays for the Almanama basketball team in Bahrain, and he's a contributor to the True Hoop blog at ESPN.com. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and uh, before I go, I always like to take a moment to correct any mistakes I made during the show. And uh, in the conversation we just heard, I mistakenly said that Randall Kennedy was a legal scholar at Yale. He is actually at Harvard. He went to Yale, but he teaches at Harvard. Anyway, uh, we will be back on the air next week, same time, same channel. And you can always listen online at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com, or on iTunes, or through your favorite mobile device using one of them podcast apps, such as the Stitcher radio app. Give it a try. 